welcome to Speaking of College. Welcome, it's your source for reliable knowledge. Oh, yeah. We got Dr. P as your host. As your host. We gon' tell you what you need to know. Need to know. Need to know. The more you know, the more you grow. The more you grow. The more you know, the more you grow. Grow. Get more knowledge. Knowledge. Welcome to Speaking of College. Speaking of College, yeah. Welcome to season three of Speaking of College, your source for reliable answers to college-related questions. I'm your host, Amelia Parnell, and I'm starting this season with a discussion about how colleges pay their bills. As we continue to see news about the rising cost to attend college, I thought it would be good to explore some details about the specific things that colleges pay for. And my guest, Liz Clark, explained it very well. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you probably noticed the three-month break since the end of season two. Well, I'm glad to be back and I have a good reason for the pause in episodes. It's because I just released my first solo book. I'll tell you more about that during the break and I'll close this episode with a question about how to make friends in college. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Speaking of College, your source for reliable answers to college-related questions. I'm your host, Amelia Parnell, and I'm excited to bring you this episode with Liz LaPolt-Clark. Liz is Vice President for Policy and Research at the National Association of College and University Business Officers, or NACUBO, a membership organization representing more than 1,700 colleges and universities across the United States. Liz is a member of the NACUBO Executive Leadership Group and heads the team that's responsible for analysis of federal regulatory and legislative actions, research, and communications at NACUBO. She has been widely quoted in the press and is a sought-after speaker on how Washington politics and federal policies impact higher education. Liz got her start on Capitol Hill in 1999, running Cornell University's first Washington, D.C.-based federal relations office, and in her career has led federal affairs for the State University of New York System and for Oregon State University. A native of Liberty, New York, Liz is a graduate of Binghamton University and received a master's degree from Cornell University. She currently lives in Fort Washington, Maryland. Liz, welcome to the show. Amelia, I'm so happy to be here. All right. I thought of this topic because I know most often the average person thinks about the cost of college in return for the student. How much does it cost for the student to go? And oftentimes I hear those synopses of, well, the student is paying for the cost to operate a college. And maybe a portion of that does come from student fees and tuition, but there's more to it. So I'm looking forward to digging into some details with you. But first, I want to ask you the same question I ask everybody, which is, where did you get started with your college journey? And what were some of the factors that influenced your decision to go there? Sure, sure. I grew up in upstate New York, about 100 miles outside of New York City. And I went to SUNY Binghamton. It's now Binghamton University. But when I was there, it was SUNY Binghamton. And it's a four-year public college in upstate New York. And it was a great school. I made lifelong friends, had a terrific start there. And really just would recommend Binghamton to anyone. It really attracts mostly an in-state population. There are a good number of international students as well, but it's one of the more competitive research universities. It's a part of the SUNY system, and I am a proud graduate. Awesome. And I see you have Binghamton on your jacket. I do. I wore... So they are now the Binghamton Bearcats. Again, we were not the Bearcats when we were there. We were the Binghamton Colonials. (laughs) Okay. There's a long, strange history to that selection. Apparently, it had more to do with the architecture of the campus president's house than it did with 
any American history, more about architecture than about history. But they went from being the Colonials to being the Binghamton Bearcats. And anyone who's a, a fan of Tony Kornheiser, and pardon the interruption, will know that he is a Binghamton graduate and likes to give attention to the Binghamton Bearcats. Uh-huh. I do watch Pardon the Interruption and definitely a fan of the show. I did not know that part. I somehow missed it in all the episodes. <laughs> yeah, fun fact. All right. So I'm going to divide the conversation into two halves. In the first half of the show, we're going to talk about the basics. So basically the common college operating expenses. And as I mentioned to you, the goal of the show is to provide reliable answers to college related questions. So let's start with a discussion of how a college in some ways can operate like a business. And with that in mind, what are some common routine expenses that a college might incur? Yeah, I'm going to back up a little bit. You mentioned at the top that sometimes when people think about colleges, they think about what students have to pay and not what it costs to deliver higher education. I would say most families always think about what a student have to pay and never thinks about the <laughs> expenses that a college or university incurs. And essentially, just like your household budget sheet, but on a much more complex level, colleges and universities have to think about their expenses and they have to think about the revenue that comes in that helps them meet those expenses. So there are many, many ways that that revenue comes in. It's from tuition significantly, but there are other resources like a college or university's endowment or state funding or other revenue streams. But those expenses go right back out to cover the costs of delivering higher education. One of the biggest expenses or the biggest expense for most institutions is salaries for faculty and staff. You need to pay for that English 101 faculty member and the lecture hall in which that class is presented. And on top of that, you need to pay for someone to shovel the sidewalk if it snowed like it does in Binghamton, New York, and then salt the sidewalk and sand the sidewalk. If you're taking chem or bio 101, you often have lab courses. And so not only do you have a lecture hall, you have research buildings and science buildings that need to be maintained. And buildings and grounds are for many colleges and universities, the second largest area of expense. It's very expensive to cover the cost of running and operating a building and particularly research buildings. Well, Liz, Liz, I, I would not have guessed that many. And your example about the snow removal reminds me of a, a really cool panel that we were on together some months back as a follow-up. So I, I think obviously the cost of salaries and expenses related to instruction would be one at the top of the list. Are there other small details that most people don't think about, like snow removal, that people don't usually see in the bigger list of costs? The devil is always in the details. So, you know, I, I'll stick with the science building example for a moment. One thing to think about is that many of those, especially chemistry and organic chemistry buildings need fume hoods and those fume hoods take and suck the air right out of the building. So whatever heating and cooling a university is paying for gets sent up into the airstream much more quickly than it might in a regular building. So the energy costs that a college or university incur is another big consideration. How is the building heating and cooled? How is the water heated or cooled? What do you do with the waste at an institution? What happens with the cafeteria scraps? Are they composted? Do they go right into the disposal stream? Campus police services, how are they provided? How are fire and emergency services provided to an institution? 
If there are athletic facilities, what's the cost of running and maintaining those athletic facilities? So, you know, some people have also raised questions about the expenses incurred by institutions during the pandemic. And frankly, there were a lot of unexpected expenses. The software licenses that colleges and universities had to purchase are rather expensive to run some of those online programs. In addition, there are there's hardware and equipment that were new expenses. The expense of testing and providing masks and other protective gear. So all of those expenses add up, but they have to come from the budget somewhere. Wow, Liz, I, I can tell you, even every, even now, every time I talk with you, I think about some other aspects of the business side of higher education. And I can tell you, sometimes it makes people in our field cringe a little bit when you describe it as a business, as though, no, it's not a business. It's not that you're selling widgets, but it truly does operate like a multi-million dollar operation. So yeah, very helpful. The large complex operations that go into running a university are deep and detailed. And if you think about some major universities, not only are they doing undergraduate education, they're doing research and graduate education. They could be operating everything from a nuclear research reactor to a teaching hospital. And those types of facilities require another layer of consideration for how to operate the revenue and expense side of the house. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've talked about some of the what, like what are the costs that it would uh, incur, you know, someone leading a campus, but what are the offices that are involved? Is there like one typical person who's involved in this? Is there an office? Is there a collection of offices that does this? How does the, the process of paying the expenses on a college, how does it work behind the scenes? So, you know, every college is different. I like to say once you know one college, you know one college. (laughs) And for some colleges and and complex universities, there could actually be hundreds of people that are part of the business side of the house. So if you think of it, I'll start at the, the top level. From the top down, there's typically a vice president for finance and administration. They often oversee a tax office that handles the tax filings and the tax compliance issues related to the university. They have a controller who oversees a team of accountants to make sure that the accounting and the books the university may be keeping is compliant with standard accounting practices. There's a treasurer's office that pays attention to the actual cash flow that's coming in and going out of the institution. So they make sure that when paychecks go out at the end of every two weeks or every month, that there's actually cash available on hand for institutions to pay. And that's a real issue. If you think about cash flow at some institutions, the tuition comes in, say, in August and January. But by the time you get to the end of July or into the month of August, some campuses may have a smaller cash flow than they typically would in other months at the institution. So from a top down, those are just a few examples of some of the people that help institutions. There's often an office or a treasury and debt office that looks at any institutional debt the institution itself may have. We talk about student debt, but institutions sometimes take on debt when they want to issue a bond to build a new building. Many educational facilities, research buildings cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to build. And issuing debt is a complex activity that requires serious strategic finance skills. If you look at it from the student's perspective, the first business officer they may run into is likely with the student financial services office. And that's the office that handles the student accounts that pays attention to what a student may have charged when it comes to 
tuition, housing, room and board, parking, athletic fees. And so it's the student financial services or the bursar's office that pays attention to the student account activities. Liz, it's like you've given us a cheat sheet for how to understand how the money flows on a campus. <laughs> there's one more piece to it. So we've talked about what the expenses are. We've talked about who handles those expenses. And you've touched on a little bit of this already, but what are some of the sources of the actual money? So we've talked about possibly debt. We've talked about students' tuition and fees. Are there other sources of revenue for which you know the money to, to cover those expenses comes in? And if so, what are some of those sources? Yeah. So. Um... I know it may sound hard to believe, but many institutions use software and they code every different type of transaction or source of revenue and type of expense. And when it comes to revenue, even for students themselves, there could be hundreds of codes at an institution. So there could be payments from the students themselves that go toward tuition. There could be third-party payments. Say an employer wants to subsidize or pay for a part of your education, they may want to pay an institution directly. So some institutions are handling employer payments. The student financial services offices are also tracking the federal student aid that comes in for a student. And let let me explain that. It's actually not just federal student aid. There's federal student aid and there's state student aid, and there are different types of aid. So they may be tracking how much a student is receiving from work study, from federal Pell Grants, from federal Perkins loans, from federal direct loans. And each type of revenue stream is coded for each student so that the student accounts office can follow these transactions and understand where that revenue is coming in. So this is just for a single student, but for the institution themselves, they're looking at tuition revenue. They could be looking at grant and contract revenue. Many universities are complex research intensive operations, and they could be receiving revenue from the Department of Defense, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy, and any number of federal agencies or private corporations that want to have or be a part of research activity on campus. Revenue could be coming in from the state for community colleges. It's coming in from counties or local governments. And going back to grants and contracts, those grants and contracts could be coming in from private foundations or many, many other sources. And then there's the development office that is handling grants, contracts, and contributions from other sources. And they are often handling some pretty complex revenue streams. So when I say revenue in the development office, it could be a piece of art. Mm -hmm. It could be a land holding. It could be an oil and gas lease that a donor holds that they want to give to the institution. So there are a lot of complex revenue transactions happening both directly from an entity to the institution or from an entity to the institution on behalf of a student that goes toward a student account. Well, Liz, I think this is an appropriate time to just say, again, I know in the in the show notes, I mentioned that you work at an organization called Nakubo. This is a nonprofit that focuses exclusively on all the things you just described and represents many of the professionals on campuses who do this type of work. It's essential that we have that role on campus. So I have to do a special thank you to those listening that might know somebody who works on a campus in any one of those functions. So the timeliness of this is more 
critical than ever, especially when you mentioned earlier about the pandemic. So I know some colleges were in the news talking about how they can actually cover expenses, maybe some cash flow deficits and things like that. And there were many people, the average everyday person would say, what about this thing called an endowment? Don't they have some some reserves that are endowed for certain reasons? For those listening who don't really know what an endowment is or how it works, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the best way to explain it is for the well, let me start out by saying an endowment is not a rainy day fund. So if you're thinking about your own household expenses, you may have a rainy day fund, but you may also have a retirement account that you're not going to tap into, or you may be tapping into, but it's an account you expect to last you 10, 20, or 30 years or more in your retirement. So there's a difference between a rainy day fund and a long-term investment vehicle. And that's what I encourage listeners to think about when they think about endowments. Colleges and universities have strategic reserves. Those are the rainy day funds. Those are the funds they set aside and were so critical during the pandemic when colleges and universities faced a lot of questions about revenue and expenses. They could tap into those strategic reserve funds to really handle any unexpected needs that they may have had or help them handle those needs. The endowment is a different story, though. The endowment is a collection often of hundreds, if not thousands of funds that have been given to an institution by donors. So, Amelia, perhaps you give an endowment to Elmira College for their ski team. I don't know (laughs) if they have a ski team. This is just an example. But you say, here's $5 million to support the ski team in perpetuity. I want this $5 million to last forever, and I want you to spend it appropriately in a way that supports students this year, next year, and for years to come while the institution is in existence. Well, endowments are typically made up of collections of many, many, many funds like that. And not all donors say they want to give to the ski team or the English program or the physics program. Many donors say that they they want to make a large gift, give it to the university, have it support the institution in perpetuity, but provide it for general purpose activities. So the endowment is something that colleges and universities tap into to pull a steady and reliable stream of funding that they can plan on for years to come. And they manage it so that that stream of funding can keep pace with inflation and grow with the needs of the institution. Liz, best explanation of endowments I have ever heard, honestly. And and every time I've asked it, I'm far less eloquent. I usually just make it succinctly. It's not what you think. It's not an emergency fund. It's it's more complex than that. I should have tapped you in. It's really easy to see these eye-popping numbers that institutions have and they're holding funds. But if you think of some of the largest endowments, they are paying out hundreds of millions of dollars a year, those that have the very, very large mm-hmm. endowments. And those with smaller endowments are really relying, it, maybe it's a $10,000 revenue stream a year, maybe it's a $250,000 revenue stream a year, maybe it's a $5 million revenue stream year. But for those institutions, that's a steady and reliable piece of funding that goes into the puzzle of the revenue picture. So they think about how much they'll bring in when it comes to revenue. They think about how much their endowment can pay. And they'll think about all their other revenue streams. One additional point I do want to make, Amelia, is that not all giving to institutions goes to endowments. That's a common misconception as well. So as a donor to an institution, 
Most individuals are actually giving to the annual fund. It's going into a fund that a college or university can tap into right away. It's really only the largest gifts. And some colleges have minimum donation levels before you're actually giving to the endowment. For example, you might need to to give $500,000 before you can give a gift to an endowment. If you only have $400,000 to give, that's going to go to the annual fund for current year operations. Liz, awesome. Just awesome explanation. Thank you for breaking all of this down. And, and typically I use the second half of the show to go into the more specific Ask the Expert set of questions, but I think we've touched on some of those already. So we're still going to go to the break and we're still going to go to the Ask the Expert section in a few minutes. And when we come back, we're going to get into a little bit more of the weedy questions and a couple that I think are specific to what students might want to know. So we'll go to the break and come back. We use data to make decisions every day. Whether we're checking the weather, managing our budget, or planning a project. Sometimes it's easy to know which information you need and how to use it, while at other times it's nice to share and analyze your data with a friend. I love data conversations, and I want those discussions to be more accessible and beneficial to everyone. So I wrote a book, and it's called You Are a Data Person, Strategies for Using Analytics on Campus. In the book, I explain why I think we all have a data identity that includes six core abilities that we all possess to some degree. I wrote this book to encourage all of us to leverage our strengths and make some of our most critical data-informed decisions together. If you want to learn more, my new book, You Are a Data Person, is available on Amazon and all other major book outlets. All right, Liz, welcome back. Are you ready for the Ask the Expert set of questions? I am. Hit me with your gut shot, Amelia. Okay, all right. As you think about the number of conversations you probably have in your daily work about the cost to operate a college, is there another, you've mentioned several, but is there another common misconception about the cost to operate a college in addition to the things you shared already? I think the most common misconception at a college or university is about administrator expenses. People who know a little bit, but just enough to be dangerous, talk about the administrator expenses at a college or university. But when a college or university is reporting its administrator expenses, they're not just talking about the C-suite at a college or university. They're not just talking about the president, vice presidents, the CFO. Administrators at colleges and universities include the health services staff, the veteran services staff, the cafeteria staff, the cleaning staff, the campus police, anyone who's not a faculty member. So the next time you hear someone throw shade at the notion (laughs) of a college administrator, I think it's important to remind them of the critical role that college administrators play, the academic service advisors, the career service advisors. Those are all college administrators, and they're such an important part of any student's successful college career. Yeah, that is a common misconception. I hear it a lot too. So as a follow-up, thinking about the students and those thinking about college who might be listening to this show, I know that the cost to operate a college is the primary focus, but again, as alluded to earlier, the cost to the student comes up quite a bit. How do you typically respond to questions when someone asks you about how the cost to the student influences the overall cost to operate a college? This, This notion that if the cost to operate a college goes up, so should the cost to the student. How do you typically respond to that type of framing? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's it's easy to, to give a quick response about skin in the game. I think that 
how students and their families pay for college is a really complex endeavor, and it takes serious kitchen table discussions with families. And at the end of the day, I personally believe there's a college for everyone and there's a college everyone can afford. Whether you start at a two-year community college or whether you start at a large four-year pricey institution, there's a college for you and there's a different way to finance it. And you should explore options and you shouldn't expect that the pricey, flashy college and frankly, the college of darling daughter or darling son's dreams is the college they have to go to. It may not be the right college for that student. And that's a really, really hard thing to say, but I do think it's a reality that that families should face that the most expensive college or the dream college is not always the right college for your student. In terms of expenses, I, I guess I want to add, Amelia, that why shouldn't college be expensive? I know I'd want to go to an institution that's hiring the best faculty, providing the best career service advisors, providing the facilities that I would expect or demand for the type of education that I want. If I'm going to school for nursing, I know that I'm going to want the best practical nursing experience that I can get. So I think that students should demand that their institutions are making the right investments for them in their education. Mm-hmm. Liz, I like your framing. And I think I can insert a shameless plug for season one, episode one, which was speaking of college costs. And a, a lot of the points you just made came out of that, that the considerations that a student and their family would take uh, into consideration when choosing a college is not exclusively financial, but that's a big part of it. The academic preparation that you just mentioned is a part of it and the social aspect, the integration with others and learning in an environment that's very holistic. So it, it all costs money you know, to operate that. So very good framing. I certainly appreciate it. All right. We have two more questions. My favorite question last, my next uh, to last question, though, is you've shared a lot. We've talked a lot about the fine details of how to operate a college and, and actually use some of the common terms that those on, on the administrative side would typically use, the bursar's office, the controller's office, sources of revenue, sources of expenses. For students and parents who've heard this and other listeners, and, and now they're curious and they want to lo- learn more about how the college manages its budget, how much of this stuff is public? Not for the purpose of having them come and call up somebody randomly and say, show me the whole you know uh, list of expenses. But if they want to learn more, where can they find more information about how this works. Sure thing, Amelia. This may sound a little geeky, but most colleges put their annual financial statement online. And it's easy to find the budget office and that annual financial statement. And the first few pages, you really only need to read one, two, or three pages in to most college annual financial statements to get a great overview to find out what the institution's strategic priorities are currently where they're investing, and what their overarching revenue picture looks like. And there's a lot of information that can be taken away. You do not need to be a CPA to be able to read the first few pages of any institution's annual financial statements. Most of them begin with pie charts that we all learned how to read in school. And I encourage people to take a look at them. You'll learn a lot about your institution. I think so too. Liz, this accomplished everything that I was hoping, that we would take a new, fresh perspective on a topic that some people talk about, but not enough people I think know about. And so your answers have been perfect. Before I let you go, I got to ask you my favorite question, which is the backpack question. So we talked about where you got your start at Binghamton. Imagine if you were preparing a backpack for a student who was going to start college, maybe at Binghamton, maybe someplace else in the next year. What's something that you put in that backpack and why? 
So when I saw your question, Amelia, I wasn't sure whether you were looking for something tangible or something intangible. And I racked my brain on some something tangible. And it's kind of funny because things have changed so much. I mean, when I was in school, we had physical keys to get in our building. And now we have fobs to get in out of building. The, the key facility at a college or university is now collecting dust, right? So things change. So I'm not sure what tangibly I'd put in a backpack, but intangibly, the number one thing that I would tell any student headed to college to pack in their backpack is curiosity. Ask questions, be curious, go to that financial statement and take a look at it. Go to that career services office and find out what they can do for you. If you are curious about the issues that we spoke about today, go see if you can find your student financial services director and learn more from them. See if your campus chief business officer, the vice president for finance and administration engages with students. I bet many of them do. Some of them teach classes about college financing 101. So be curious. Curiosity is what I would encourage people to pack in their backpack. Liz, perfect answer. And it can be both tangible and intangible. I think every time I've asked this question, the answers get better and better. So now I want the backpack too. And honestly, I think it, it really frames up the whole purpose of the show, which is to provide reliable answers to college-related questions. And I think we have piqued some people's curiosity uh, to learn more about the functions of the business office and how a college manages its expenses and its revenue. So I couldn't be more thrilled for people to hear this episode. And I will put some links to your bio and where they can read more about your work at Nakubo in the show notes. But Liz, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure and kudos to you on such a great service to students and families. I believe in higher education. I've dedicated my career for now more than 20 years to higher education. So thank you for taking on this grand scale challenge of <laughs> speaking of college. Yes. Thank you for going on the journey with me. It's time to ask Dr. P. Ask Dr. P. Ask Dr. P. Get the S's that you need. Today's question is from Millie in D.C. Millie writes, Dear Dr. P, I hear people say often that it's good to make friends in college. Where do I start? Millie, I really like this question and I have three ideas to help you. The first is to try to connect with someone who's in a class with you. Sometimes the best way to make a new friend is to find something that you have in common. For example, if you have a test coming up in that class, consider inviting a classmate to join you for a study session. It could be a good way to get to know the person's communication style which is very important in a friendship. A second idea is to sign up for a volunteer opportunity. As you give of your time, you have a chance to learn about something new, meet other generous people, and maybe stay connected after the volunteer experience ends. My third idea is to join a campus club or organization. Most colleges have a variety of organizations that are designed to help students meet and share common interests. For example, if you really like playing chess and your campus has a chess club, that could be a good option for you. If you're wondering how to find the clubs that your campus offers, start by contacting the Office of Student Activities. I'm sure they can help you find something fun. In addition to these three things, I'd like to share something my sister says often. She says that a good way to gain friends is to be a friend. I wish you the best as you expand your friend group. And thanks again for a great question. If you're listening to this show and you have a question about college, you can write me at amelia at speakingofcollege.com and I'd be glad to answer and maybe feature your question on a future episode. For now, that brings this first episode of season three to a close. I hope the discussion about how colleges pay their bills has helped you better understand more about what it takes for a college to operate daily. It's certainly expensive. And thanks again to Liz for breaking down the basics for us. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing to the show. And I'll be back with you and speaking of college again soon. 
In the meantime, I hope you have an inspiring day.